Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. This is a podcast episode about perimenopause. So if you're under 45, you probably don't need to listen. Kidding! As my guest today, Maisie Hill, will tell you, perimenopause and the menopause are issues that we should all be learning about and talking about in our 20s and 30s. So please do stay listening. Maisie is a women's health practitioner who is passionate about getting us all in tune with our menstrual cycle and transitioning into menopause as smoothly as possible. Her book, Perimenopause Power, is a must-read guide for every woman. Personally, it really helped me work out what was going on, identify symptoms and work out a few different solutions to balancing out my hormones. Maisie talks to me about why this stuff isn't discussed more widely, what women in their 20s and 30s can be doing now to help them hugely when perimenopause hits, and what the signs are that we can be looking out for. If you're new to the podcast, I would be so grateful if you could rate and review and subscribe if you enjoy the episode. Also, if you know anyone who's expecting twins, my book, OMG It's Twins, is the perfect gift and available to buy now. But on to my chat with Maisie talking about all things perimenopause. Maisie, a huge thank you for joining me today. I have wanted to have you on as a guest since I read your first book, Period Power, a couple of years ago. And I think what you do and what you put out there is so important for women to listen to. I agree. I'm right there with you. And like, that's, <laughs> that's my driving force every day. You know, I was thinking yesterday, like, what is, what is it that allows me to kind of create this much content, whether it's books or my podcast or, you know, any of the work I do. And I just feel so compelled. I was actually looking up the meaning of the word driven. <laughs> and it is like compelled and a sense of urgency. And I think that really came from, you know, my experience as a teenager when I first started having my cycle and all the years that I struggled with debilitating period pain and then premenstrual issues. And, you know, certainly when it came to parenting, like having someone, being someone who's a parent and who has a cycle is not without its challenges. And 
I just know what understanding your hormones and understanding your experience of your cycle, whatever your cycle is like, like the positive impact that that can have on someone's life is huge. So I just feel very driven and compelled to keep talking about it and to to keep find ways of exploring it. And, you know, it's, I'm, I love the work I do. That's, uh, that really comes across. It's so, so apparent. Um, it's really interesting though, hearing you talking about it because I'm someone who, you know, personally, I have struggled with hormones since a teenager and I really feel like my whole reproductive system hates me. And, you know, I've suffered from endometriosis and I've suffered from secondary infertility and heavy periods and blah, blah, blah. I could give you a list. Um, and I just, I, I guess reading your books and listening to you talk, um, it's made me kind of think, oh, so hormones and periods and all of that stuff isn't something that has to be hated. And it's not, I mean, I have felt, I have felt a burning, this kind of feeling of unfairness over the years. It's so unfair that I have to go through this and men don't have to go through this. This is so unfair. <laughs> yeah. And there can be like all this unfairness and sense of injustice. And, and, and it's right that that's there because there is so much that's unfair, you know, particularly when we look at research funding, access to services. And, you know, when you mention men, well, what if men had this range of symptoms affecting them, then probably things would be very different. So I think it is right that we feel those emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, I, I find it really interesting listening to you talk and hearing you say that, you know, your cycle, your periods, uh, you know, all of that stuff is something that you've learned to love and, you know, that you, you get positivity out of this rather than my experience, which is utter misery and negativity. Yeah. Cause I think when you're in that place, it can be like, what the hell is she on about when she's saying she's having this great experience? And, you know, it's not like my cycles, rainbows and daisies and unicorns, like every day, all day. I, you know, still have challenges from time to time, but I'm certainly equipped to deal with them in various ways. And certainly, I never thought I'd be the person who said that they had a positive experience of their period. But you are. But you, you know, are. I used to be the person. I am now, yeah. But I used to be the person who would hear someone say that and think, what are they on about? Are they mental? Because it just was so far removed from my experience because... I would, you know, if I came on my period and I was out and about, I just have to lie down on the pavement or, you know, find a bench to sit on or just, you know, wait until I could summon enough uh, energy determination to get home or to find some painkillers. So, you know, it's it's really interesting actually to reflect back and think about what it used to be like for me because now it is very different. And I think uh, that's important for people to hear is that it can be different. And even when you do have these challenging times in your cycle, you know, like you were saying, your experience of your cycle, that that doesn't necessarily prevent you from having a positive experience of your cycle, even though there are challenges there. Yeah. What do you think was the turning point? What has changed to take you from, you know, from feeling one way about your cycle to, to today? Mm. Well, I did a lot of things, you know, and I kind of talk about that in my book, but I, I, tried all sorts of different 
therapies. I, you know, went down medical routes and, you know, I was on the verge of having a laparoscopy to investigate, could it be endometriosis or something along those lines? Um, and kind of when I was starting to have that conversation with the gynecologist and my GP, that's when I thought, right, I'm just going to double down on investigating other things. And that's when, because up until that point, I'd you know, done a bit of this and a bit of that. And I would get some relief, but it was the kind of thing that I'd have to be doing week in, week out to keep that effect going. Um, but then I discovered Chinese medicine and I... Uh, so an acupuncturist and I also had herbs and that changed things literally overnight you know from one cycle to the next a completely different experience so um that worked really well for me and I went on to train as an acupuncturist and you know that's where I get a lot of my clinical experience from in treating menstrual cycle and reproductive issues um but also bringing in nutrition, lifestyle things. And I think that's the thing. Sometimes there is something that's going to make a massive difference to someone, but often it's looking at a well-rounded approach. And certainly that would be the case if someone's got a condition like endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome, for mm. example. Yeah. So let's dive in and talk about all things perimenopause. Yeah. Um, for anyone who isn't sure, what is the difference between the menopause and perimenopause? It's a great starting place just to make sure we're all on the same page <laughs> because there's a lot of misconceptions here because menopause itself only lasts for one day and it simply marks the one year anniversary of your last period. So, um, the average age in the UK for your to go through menopause is 51. So let's say you have your last period when you're 50, 12 months go by, that one day is menopause and then you're postmenopausal. So, you know, we often talk about menopause being something that happens in your 50s and that's true. But as you and I know, <laughs> it could start a lot before that um, because perimenopause is the period of time usually years in which you still have a cycle. It might be shorter, it might be further apart, um, but you start to get menopausal symptoms. And to begin with, like this is where I find myself at the moment, um, those symptoms might just occur around the time that your period is due. So my cycle used to be kind of around 28 days, pretty regular. Now it is around like 23, 24 days long. So it's got shorter. Um so I don't fit the official definition of perimenopause, which is seven or seven or more days difference in length. I'm not quite there, but I am starting to have insomnia when my period is due, having night sweats, needing to stick my feet out from underneath the duvet, um, mood changes, those kinds of things. So that's what perimenopause can be like. It's not necessarily uh, you know, the picture we have a w of a woman having a hot flush. and It's always a, it's always a woman with grey hair having a hot flush. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> Rather than the vivacious 40-year-old who's just living life and feeling rage all and the time. And to be honest, 40-year-olds can have grey hair too, but it's always like yes. full heads, you know, women kind of in her mid-50s. It's like... yeah. Leaning against a freezer yes. with, or like doing a piddly barbell workout. That's the other thing that I've noticed. <laughs> It really does feel like we need to totally rebrand the menopause. And your book seems like part of that effort, but 
we need women in their 30s to have this on their radar and we need to shift the message. Oh, 100%. So that they're aware it's something that they should be learning about because, you know, I mean, I know that in my 30s, it, was, it wasn't a topic that I engaged with. I thought, well, that's something that happens to women in their 50s. So that's yeah. not for me to think about or talk about. Whereas... You know, it couldn't be further from the truth because although probably most people's symptoms start in their 40s at some point, but the hormonal shifts that ultimately lead to menopause start in our 30s, which is probably going to be quite scary to some people to hear, particularly if, you, for example, you are on a journey to conceive and you think, what? This is going to be starting. But, you know, progesterone is the hormone that starts to taper off first and production declines Sometimes in someone's 30s, you know, mid to late 30s, we can start to see that happening. That doesn't mean your periods are going to stop and that you're not going to be able to conceive, but it's that process can start to take place then. So it is absolutely a conversation that we should be having a lot earlier in life. And particularly because there's things that we can even be doing in our 20s that are going to have an impact on our experience of the menopause transition and the decades that follow. So what kind of things, if someone's listening in their 20s or their 30s, what can they be doing to kind of help that transition? Start lifting weights. Right. That's the big one. Because once estrogen and progesterone start to decline, that has an impact on the health of our bones and we lose bone density quite rapidly around the time that our periods stop and that's what sets us up for um, issues like osteoporosis later on in life and the time when we can build the most bone density is in our teens and our 20s. You can still do it in your 30s, still do it in your 40s but that time in the teens and the 20s is really influential so I think that's a great thing to be considering. And the other thing that I'm like hugely passionate about that I wish we all learn a lot sooner in life is that it's okay to say no. And I think the more skilled and comfortable we are with saying no and with having boundaries and of being able to prioritize our own health um, and pleasure as well then the easier it is because if you haven't learned that by the time you're in your 40s and going through perimenopause then you then you have to and it's going to be a bit of a crash course but if we can be doing that um earlier in life then that's going to have such a positive impact throughout our lifetime do you mean in terms of just protecting i guess your your downtime and making sure that you have that you're not just burning yourself out is that what you mean by saying no yes yeah because i think you know we are socialized to take care of others and that can be really beneficial but ultimately it can lead us to positions where we're overcommitted and overstretched and that's not to say that we're not capable of doing all these things but you know, what impact is it having? And there's things that feel fine in your 20s and things that you can probably get away with in your 30s. But once you're kind of getting into our age range, it's going to be more challenging. And what I see are women who are burning themselves out taking care of everyone else. Mm. It does seem like, you know, the yeah 40s and 50s seems to be that kind of time. I mean, a lot of a lot of women have older kids by then, you know, teenagers who perhaps 
need quite a lot of emotional, you know, support. Um, and perhaps they've got elderly or, you know, getting on to elderly parents who need a bit of support. And it, it feels like a real kind of crunch time to also yeah. then be going through um, menopausal, you know, um, issues and shifts and changes. Um, which kind of, I guess, have a huge, huge effect, a huge, huge impact on, on how they're coping with all of that stuff. They really do, because I think this is whenever I'm considering the impact of hormones and someone's experience of them, what I'm always interested in is, is asking, do you feel resilient to the things that are going on in your life? And often women aren't. You know, and particularly in perimenopause, when there are these hormonal shifts going on, it's like your resilience can just tank and your self-confidence can go, your sense of identity goes, and then that shows up in your relationships and in your working life as well. And what we see around this time are, you know, women like considering redundancy, um, you know, they've fought all their lives to climb into positions of leadership and then feeling like they can't fulfill those positions or like they need to run and hide because uh, like their sense of self has just shifted so much. And, you know, it's no coincidence, I think, that the kind of the age range where women are at greatest risk for suicide is after menopause you know, 51 to 54, I think the age range is. And that's when estrogen just drops. So it's really important. Another reason that we should be talking about this because of the impact it has on someone's mental health and how they view themselves. Because if you know that's what's going on and why it's going on, then you can see it for what it is rather than thinking that there's something wrong with you, which is, I think, where many women end up. Yeah. And I read in your book that um, the hormone shifts can kind of have a real impact on your relationship. So you can, you know, look at your partner and find everything they do even more annoying than normal. And yep. it can affect your attraction levels in terms of how attracted you are to them. Um, that's That's kind of terrifying to think of. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I do think perimenopause is a good time to be making decisions and like redeciding the things you want for your life. Like, do I still want to be in this relationship? Is this the career I want? Am I happy with these things? And some of them you might decide, yes, these, I still, I still do want this. And you kind of make that commitment again. But sometimes, you know, women just waking up and going, actually, this isn't the life I want. And they are making subtle or radical changes. Um, but sometimes that's coming from, um, I suppose like a shaky foundation. Because mm. they say, don't they say that um, you should never make big life decisions when you're in a temporary situation or you know, under temporary stress. So it, it would kind of concern me if women are, you know, making huge life decisions when they're having these hormone fluctuations that could potentially level out or be leveled out. Well, I think that's the thing in a lot of the work that I do with my clients is like trying to help them get to a place where they're making a decision from a positive place, as in not a place where they're like 
scared or stressed or like operating from a place of lack instead of sufficiency and feeling in control and empowered to be making these decisions it's very different and the decision might still be the same but where it's Mm. coming from is very different um and you know often the like menopausal facebook groups are filled with people saying you know i've wanted to murder my partner you know usually a husband for years and, you know, I've just started taking HRT and our relationships back to what it used to be. So, you know, it's obviously a nuanced conversation. There's a lot more to it, but, you know, relationships are one of the things that can be impacted by this for sure. Yeah. Now you mentioned HRT and you prefer to call it menopause hormone therapy, don't you? Why is that? Well, that's what the scientific literature now tends to refer to it as. So it's kind of more medically correct and up to date. But, you know, we we're used to it being called uh, HRT. But menopausal hormone hormone therapy for me is is more appropriate because HRT is like replacement therapy, which, you know, yes, let's bring in hormonal support, but not under the guise of this is what our hormones should be because for whatever reason and whether we like it or not our hormones do drop off and this is how our um bodies have evolved um but we're not it's still what i have to be careful with my language choices here (laughs) but it's 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 the I want to say natural for want of a better word, but it's the natural course of events that our hormones do taper off. But uh, so we're not replacing hormones, but we could still be uh, bringing hormonal uh, support in, which, you know, I'm fully behind. That yeah. makes absolute sense. Yeah. I, I use the word, the word natural there very cautiously. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if someone's listening and they've seen all the headlines, usually on the, in the Daily Mail, about the risks of breast cancer and HRT, HRT um, what advice do you have for them? Uh, it's a load of rubbish yeah. is the top line. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's scaremongering rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> It is. Those headlines largely come from one big study that was done over 20 years ago now. Um, and that study... Um, was big and there was a lot of funding behind it but the study wasn't carried out in the most rigorous of ways and there were people included in the trial who shouldn't have been included they shouldn't have been allowed to participate uh, just because they had pre-existing conditions or they were of an age where it didn't make sense for them to be in the trial and basically then so this data was flawed and then it was also analysed incorrectly. And that's where these headlines come from, that it you know doubles your risk of breast cancer and doubles your risk of heart disease. Um, and actually, you know, that's not true. And it can be very protective against many of these chronic health conditions. And, you know, like for me, my family history, my family are all from Scotland. So there's a risk of heart disease on both sides of my family. My mum had osteoporosis. So for me, even just looking at my family history without any symptoms, um, I can just see how it would be beneficial for me to take HRT. And there's also, we're getting more evidence now that it can be protective against degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia. And the breast cancer risk just isn't there. You know, the evidence we have is that it can actually be uh, 
like very safe for people to take. And what's really interesting is when you look at breast cancer, people who do get breast cancer just in the population are ultimately still more likely to die from heart disease. So, you know, there's a whole chapter where I go into uh, the data in an accessible way and just kind of counteract what we've been led to believe um, about HRT because most of it's a load of rubbish. And if and if people are, you know, aware of that, but they're, they're still perhaps reluctant to, you know, put hormones in their bodies because it doesn't feel like a natural thing to do, what what would you say to that? Yeah. So this is why I was being careful with my choice of language and saying natural because I, I understand where people are coming from with this. And I get asked a lot of questions about this over Instagram and things. And, you know, the hormones that we're talking about here, they are, well, first of all, I don't like the whole use of uh, natural or not natural. I just don't think it's useful. And it's also not accurate because the hormones that we're talking about are natural. They're made from yams and they are identical to the ones that we produce. So we refer to them as body identical. And that's also a big difference between the types of HRT or MHT that are prescribed now. It's very different to the forms that were um used in these trials that were conducted decades ago. So, you know, they uh, they are natural if you want to think of it that way. And also, I guess, you know, if people, not that everyone does, but if people have been taking the pill, for example, that's usually a synthetic hormone, isn't it? Which yeah. is quite different. Yes, it is. And, and that's the thing. I think some people like with progesterone, for example, if you've taken... Uh, hormonal contraception that included a progesterone component. It's, it's actually not progesterone. It's progestogen. It's a synthetic form. And some people have a not so great time on that. Um, and experience mood changes and what have you. But actually the progesterone that we're talking about for HRT is very different because it is identical to the progesterone that you produce as a result of ovulation. So it's very. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, with the fact that half the population go through the menopause, why are we in a situation where this isn't being discussed more? This is a great question. <laughs> if I was going to answer it in one word, it would be the P word, patriarchy. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> <sighs> 
I mean, I do think it's shifting. You know, I think uh, in recent years, you know, women like us have been talking about the menstrual cycle, about fertility, about um, pregnancy loss, and you know the 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 challenges I suppose that can be there in your twenties and thirties. And then as we've got older. I think now that conversation is starting to change and we are talking more about perimenopause. So it's really exciting that there is this shift happening and, you know, women are literally crying out for it. You can see how needed it is. But it is like this, um, I don't know, like the last bastion, like the, the last remaining piece that's still very taboo and, and isn't spoken about. Um, so I do think that's shifting. But I think it's just this, you know, this prejudice against aging and particularly the female body aging and, you know, the language around the menopausal body um, is quite negative. You know, we talk about like withering and things, tissues drying and vaginal atrophy um, and, you know, cognitive decline. And these symptoms can be there, you know, they can be talked about in more neutral terms. Uh, that would be my preference. But it's like this, I don't know, this constant consideration of the female body is wrong or dirty or liable to go wrong or dysfunction in some way. And it's like it needs to be, you know, brushed under a carpet and kept behind closed doors. So I do think that's shifting. But there's more shifts. <laughs> what can we do to shift it faster? Because when you think about, you know, like you mentioned things like fertility and, you know, even when you think about, um, I don't know, when you're a teenager and you learn about contraception at school, at, you know, in your sex education class, and you know that you can go to your GP and you know all the range of options that are open to you. And it's kind of, it's, a lot of teenagers might find it a bit of an embarrassing conversation to be having, but it's had and the information is out there. Yeah, it kind of feels like, you know, like you say, we're still not there yet with the menopause and with perimenopause. So what what else needs to happen to kind of push that even further and open up the conversation more? Oh, well, I've got three things for you that instantly come to mind. The first one, of course, is read my book, because if we're all educated about it, then we're in a stronger position to influence the people around us, the medical professionals we interact with, and you know, don't underestimate the ripple effect of the people in your in your uh, communities. So that's number one. Number two is there is uh, the Menopause Matters campaign that Diane Danzebrink has been spearheading and doing so much work on, and she is really fighting for this conversation um, to be happening in schools you know, and and that is shifting and for medical professionals to receive more education around perimenopause and menopause. So that's number two. And number three, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, Alison, but there is currently the government are in the first phase of developing a women's health strategy, which shockingly, but not surprisingly, isn't in place at the moment. So they are in the first stage, which is a call for evidence, and they've extended the deadline until June 13th. So if this goes out before then, 
I would really encourage people to Google call for evidence women's health strategy and fill in the questionnaire and submit any evidence you want to supply about your experience of women's health issues. And that might be reproductive health issues or other things as well. And that's just in England, isn't it? I, I believe. Yes, it's in England. I believe yeah. that Scotland and Wales are doing and, and Northern Ireland are doing their own, um, their own thing with that. Yes, that's my understanding too. But it's, I think the, the climate is ripe for us to speak up and actually be heard. And I completely get why some people are hesitant to, because there is a long history of us being dismissed and not listened to and told it's in our heads and, oh, you're just stressed or, you know, explaining it away with uh, being female, basically. And, but I, so I get why people might be hesitant to if they've had negative experiences in the past, but this is our time to change that. So, what, however people want to do that, I would just really encourage you to all just start speaking up, whether it's to your best friend, with uh, medical professionals in your lives, with uh, contacting your MP, involving yourself in organisations, just, just I think doing this work for yourself because there's so much power in perimenopause you know that's the name of my book <laughs> perimenopause power because I do think this is a time when we can really shake yeah, things up yeah and you mentioned GPs and I have heard so many stories from women saying I went to my GP and you know particularly women who are in their late 30s or early 40s and I was totally dismissed I was told that you know that they wouldn't even do blood tests or they wouldn't, you know, consider um, perimenopause. Um, and is it, it am, am I right in thinking that GPs aren't necessarily trained or, you know, educated in menopause when they're doing their training? Yeah, the I mean, they will have some training, but, you know, how much training um, is going to vary greatly. And there are certainly some GPs and some services out there that are fantastic and, you know, the, those medical teams are very passionate and they're doing great work. Um, but like you said, uh, many women are going to their doctors and not having a great experience because, you know, the in what my eyes was a public health scandal after that large trial came out, the Women's Health Initiative 20 years ago. And, you know, the impact of that was felt not just on women and patients who just stopped taking HRT overnight, but also on the uh, medical practitioners who were prescribing it. And that's that effect still lingers on. So there's work to do for education for all of us. Um, but I think what you can really do on a, on a very practical level is just to look at the, the nice guidelines for menopause, because that gives you in very plain language what um, the kind of treatment strategies or the um, the routes that should be on offer to you. And you can take those, read them for yourself, take them to your GP, because one thing I hear a lot is that women are being prescribed antidepressants rather than HRT, um, which just makes me want to bash my head against a wall because it's just enrages me on every level. Um, but the NICE guidelines clearly state that that shouldn't be uh, the kind of first port of call uh, when when HRT is indicated. So 
if you know that and if you have those guidelines and you print them out, then you can take them into your GP and just say, well, I'm looking at the NICE guidelines here and, you know, it mentions HRT and that antidepressants aren't actually appropriate in this case. How does this apply to me? Or, you know, to just uh, equip yourself to have that conversation. I'm sure GPs love it when their patients turn up with NICE guidelines (laughs) printed out and say, here. Well, I think some of them do, (laughs) you know, and it, and, you know, that is, and I say this as a, you know, uh, as a practitioner myself, I'm not a GP, but as a, as a health practitioner that informed patients help us to do our jobs better because they're coming in with a sense of what the problem is and a sense of what they would like to do. And so in an ideal world, that should always be responded to positively. But, you know, every profession out there has people who um, who won't respond to these things in a positive way. And that's unfortunate, but that's just, you know, the case as is with all professionals. Yeah. Um, and it can be really hard sometimes, I think, for women to piece together the symptoms because, you know, unless you're really across, I mean, there's over 30 perimenopause symptoms aren't there oh there's loads Um, there's loads you know for me personally last year I I remember starting to feel very very hot but it was during the heat wave we had last summer so I just thought I was hot because it was you know really really hot outside I'm feeling very tired and anxious but so was everyone because we were in lockdown same for the headaches I was getting and it took months before I was like you know the penny dropped and I was like oh hang on a minute I think I know I think these things are all related so it can be really tricky, I think, to actually not explain away these symptoms as being, you know, something else. Yeah. And that's the thing. They always can be explained away by something else. And I think that was something that really struck me when I was doing the research and writing the book. You know, I knew going into it that hormones impact everything. But uh when I really got lost in the research, you just really get struck by how hormones really do impact everything. And, you know, we have hormone receptors throughout our bodies. Uh, so when those hormone levels start to change and our hormonal landscape starts to shift, we really do feel it in a multitude of ways. But um, it's not helpful, particularly if you're tired or you have brain fog or your memory's starting to go, which are all symptoms of perimenopause. Uh, it make it can make it harder to put those pieces of the puzzle together. So, and especially when there's a backdrop of lack of education, lack of conversation around this, you know, and I think, you know, some, some women say to me, you know, that they feel quite ashamed or guilty or embarrassed that they didn't realize sooner. And I just think, well, why, why, why put that on yourself? It's just, it's, first of all, it's not helpful. It's understandable that you are, but it's not helpful and it's not appropriate to, because actually this is, um, really a symptom of what needs to change on a societal level it's not about you absolutely don't make it your fault so if someone's listening and they have um you know experiencing some symptoms and kind of wondering what to do about it um you know you've mentioned um you know speaking to your gp and starting that conversation Um, obviously reading your book would be um, a great place to start um, and, you know, you mentioned uh, weights, uh, doing, you know, um, lifting weights. What other kind of lifestyle changes and kind of not quick fixes, but things that you can put into place today can someone do to see if it has a positive effect on them? Oh, great question. Um, sleep. sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very passionate about sleep. Um, 
it, you know, I'm always reminded of when I was doing my acupuncture degree of my course director being in the clinic and someone came in with a really complicated case. They had lots of medical issues. And when we were discussing the case and where to start, he just said to me, like, Maisie, if you've got someone coming in with all of these issues and sleep is one of them, always work on improving sleep because unless you address sleep, you'll get limited success in all the other things. And sleep is often the magic bullet that improves all the other things because when we don't sleep, that influences our blood sugar levels the next day. We're more likely to survive on caffeine and sugar, which then has, you know, consequences for other health issues. Um, our mood sucks. It's harder to get things done. It impacts how we see ourselves, you know. So for me, you know, sleep is hugely important, but it is, you know, people who are perimenopausal will be laughing and saying, well, how am I meant to sleep? Because sleep is the thing that gets harder um, once we are in that perimenopausal range. So supporting sleep is really important by, you know, staying off electronics before bed, uh, you know, getting all your thoughts out on paper, all your worries and things that can really help. Uh, that's something I encourage my clients to do before they go to bed to just empty their brain out onto paper and then put it away. But also, uh, uh, you know, herbal stuff can be helpful. Even just like sleepy time teas, using CBD oil can help with sleep. Taking progesterone can massively help with sleep. Um, and, you know, particularly if you are finding it's the second half of your cycle where sleep is challenging and maybe you've got insomnia and premenstrual night sweats. And that could be a reason to have this conversation with your GP and discuss if progesterone would be appropriate for you to start taking. But also supplements like magnesium can also be really supportive. So I think, you know, as with you know, there are so many symptoms in perimenopause and I give so many strategies in the book. And sometimes it's just about what you feel is appropriate for you at this moment in time. And in two months or two years time, that uh, plan might need to shift a bit, but it's just important to know that there are usually many options for each symptom. Um, but uh, to be honest with you, often taking HRT will, will solve many of yeah, them at one time. Yeah. It's amazing. Your book is one of those books where it's like a real kind of, you turn the corners over, you know, it's like, right, I need to bookmark that. I need to come back to that. You know, <laughs> um, I've got so many corners turned over. And when I read it, I read it, um, I, can't, I don't know when it came out, but I feel like I read it two months ago. I think I bought it quite. Yeah, I think March it came out. I think out. I read it in March. And actually, I'll tell you what made me pick it up. I bought it. And then it's out there for maybe two weeks. And then I had a day where I had such a bad headache that I was in bed all day, which is one of my symptoms, um, perimenopause symptoms. And I was like, right, this is ridiculous. I need to take control. I'm going to read this book. And I read it literally like, you know, in a couple of hours. Um, it's so easy to digest. It's not, even though, even though you've got a lot of kind of medical information in there, it's very easy to read. Um, and from that day, I basically self-diagnosed myself with insulin uh, resistance. Is that the right the right term? Yep. That's and I was it, like, yep. right from today. <clears throat> so from that day, I basically cut right back on my sugar intake, which I've done in the past um, because I knew I had an issue with insulin in the past. And um, I started taking um, supplements. So I went out and got myself some um, you know, vitamin D and other things that you'd recommended in the book. And I don't know whether it's just psychological, but I have felt in the last two months, I have felt so much better. My symptoms have really 
really lessened. Um, so I just think that it's, it's really worth if anyone's got symptoms to kind of look, you know, go through your book and kind of cherry pick things that they think might help and just give it a try. Yeah. And I think I love the way you described that because that's how I like to talk about things is that you cherry pick what appeals to you in this moment or what is appropriate and safe for you to be doing in this moment. And, you know, you don't have to do everything in the book. I give people lots of options so that they can cherry pick and and do what works for them. Um, And it's also important, you know, we talk about managing symptoms and often that's where the conversation is with perimenopause, understandably, because so many people are really struggling. But it's also a window of opportunity, and this is what the scientific literature refers to it as, a window of opportunity to address things that are or influence your health in the decades that are going to follow. So often when we're making choices, it should be on, yes, managing your symptoms, but I think it's also great to bring in consideration of influencing the 30 or 40 years that are going to be happening uh, because this is a time when we can make really powerful decisions for ourselves, whether it's, you know, we're talking about our relationships or using supplements or HRT, whatever the case may be, we can have a really positive impact on what our older years are going to look like. So uh, it's it's a powerful time. It really is. It really is. Maisie, it has been so wonderful to chat to you today. Before we go, where can people hear more from you uh, online and on social media? Well, thank you for having me. It's been a really incredible conversation for me to have. And I I hope that comes through when people are listening to it and that it's been helpful. Um, If you want to hear more of me, I have my podcast, The Period Power Podcast. Um, You can find me on MaisieHill.com, my website. And on Instagram, I'm underscore MaisieHill underscore. And uh, my book's anywhere you anywhere you find books you should be able to find it all good bookshops (laughs) yeah Maisie thank you so much it's been brilliant thank you for having me and I hope to catch you another time planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.